Again, today's sermon is one Amy gave a couple of years ago, and I will keep it in the first person and be Amy. Its title is Notes from the Resistance. Joy and I traveled on our own for three weeks this summer, and it was largely a tour of art museums. We both love them, and wherever we go, we grab the chance to see art in person that we have only ever seen in reproductions, if at all. Van Gogh's painting of his bedroom, Banksy's sharp, funny political commentaries painted on city walls, the museum building designed by Hundertwasser, as colorful and playful as the paintings hanging on its walls. An entire oval room that places us, the viewers, in the middle of a pond of water lilies by Monet. I must confess that one kind of museum I usually pass up is a history museum. I expect them to be dry and dull. I've been to too many that were simply row upon row of items detached from their context in human life. But during our travels, we went to one history museum that was as immersive as any room of water lilies. And that gave me as much insight about life today as any graffiti by Banksy. It is a museum of the Dutch resistance in World War II, located in Amsterdam. The winding path and cul-de-sacs of the Netherlands excuse me, the winding paths and cul-de-sacs into tiny rooms take you through the many stages of the occupation of the Netherlands by the Third Reich, the challenges the people faced, the many ways they responded, and they just might take you home. <clears throat> the parallels to today's United States were, of course, unintentional. But for me, following the news back home, they were poignant and pointed. As we enjoyed Amsterdam's quiet streets, children were literally being taken from parents' arms with no timeline or plan for how to reunite, reunite them. The leader of our democratic republic was rhapsodizing about how Kim Jong-un loves his people and really wants to do a great job for the North Korea. Koreans. Dismissing reports of Kim's government killing tens of thousands of people each year through systematic murder, including infanticide, torture, persecution of Christians, rape, forced abortions, starvation, and overwork. Our president said, he speaks and his people sit up in attention. I <clears throat> excuse me, I need some water. Could you bring me a glass of water? Thank you. Uh, 
Our president said, <clears throat> he speaks and his people sit up in attention. I want my people to do the same. He says he was joking, but his autocratic impulses keep cropping up in remarks about killing journalists, proposals to quash the businesses of those who criticize him, the appointment of people unqualified in any respect except that they show personal loyalty to him, a loyalty he does not reciprocate, and an almost daily insistence that he is above the law. <clears throat> he proposes that law and order require an end to due process for selected people, the circle of those this government would like to exclude from its protections is broadening from illegal immigrants to asylum seekers and now to green card holders and to bring it up to date even to the threat to denaturalize unnaturalized uh, citizens who were born in another country. <clears throat> The sense that we are a nation reeling toward autocracy is not limited to one side of the aisle. Republicans who simply want a classically conservative approach to economics are bewildered by the seemingly random and clearly contradictory edicts about trade, taxes, and tariffs. Those who hoped for a government free of corruption that they could trust are wondering where to turn. But even those who don't perceive a need for resistance at this moment in our history would find that the walls of the Dutch Resistant Museum echo with familiar experiences. Anyone who has tried to be a part of a movement of people all pushing for the same goal knows the frustration that the people of the Netherlands faced and can learn as I did from what ensued. Movements for change are messy, morally messy. This is true even when the enemy is clearly defined and almost universally opposed. The actions people took to hurt the occupiers also hurt the people. For example, the resistance launched a railroad strike. This did impede the Nazis, but also increased hunger among the Dutch. Members of the resistance itself depended on the trains for transport, so its operation was hampered by members having to bicycle to rendezvous. Few moral choices were perfectly clear or afforded an option that resulted in entirely clean hands. Forcibly called up to work in Germany, men could either go, thus unwillingly helping the German war effort, refuse and be shot or sent to concentration camps or hide endangering their families. Those who weighed the options and went to Germany were castigated by many compatriots afterwards. Why didn't you hide? But they had not necessarily chosen the worst of three bad options. And then there were the many civil servants and officials who faced the inevitable decision 
Do I stay in my position and try to intercede for my people, soften the effect of the Nazi takeover? Or do I resist and at best be replaced by a member of the Dutch Nazi party? Some were outright collaborators, but many others were simply trying to walk an impossibly thin wire. It's the nature of violent regimes to set up such impossible choices. Divide and conquer was a common and effective strategy of the Third Reich. In the Netherlands, as elsewhere, they instituted Jewish councils that were charged with carrying out Nazi requirements. Even those leaders who did their best to mitigate the decrees were set up to be perceived as collaborators by their own people. That was one of the occupiers' intentions. Another effective strategy was the frog in the pot approach. The Nazis didn't lower the ham hammer right away. People were devastated by the invasion, but it soon appeared that life remained pretty normal, even for Jews. Bit by bit, more repressions were added. A registry system, labels on passports, requirements that school children learn a Nazi-approved curriculum. Different people drew the line in different places, and some just kept their heads down and put up with all of it. Some, no doubt, were even sympathetic to the German aims. But again, those who genuinely opposed fascism and anti-Semitism were still that frog in the pot, noticing a growing discomfort and wondering when to say, too hot. Is this sounding familiar? Those who resisted did not always agree on how to do it, when to do it, or how much was too much or not enough. In fact, the impression one gets from the museum's displays is that internal conflict was at least as common as unity. For example, people criticized even the bravest actions for coming too late. One heroic act of resistance was planned in intricate detail and attempted three times before modest success and devastating punishment, execution, imprisonment, exile. The German occupation required everyone to have papers. For many, forgeries were the only option since genuine ones would be marked with a J and thus be a sentence of internment or death. The forgeries, naturally, did not match what the registry office held. So, going to the source, the conspirators plotted to blow up the registry office. In the end, they, started, they succeeded in starting a fire that destroyed 15% of the records. Today, someone wanting to carry out equivalent sabotage would have to be a hacker. There was much rejoicing, but since most Jews had already been deported, many people also pointed out that if the bombing had been carried out earlier, many more lives would have been saved. If you haven't heard this kind of sniping lately, 
you've been staying out of political organizations. The liberals and the socialists were both pillars of Dutch life, according to the museum. But it was not they who rushed to the defense of Dutch Jews, but the fringe, mistrusted communists. I wonder how people responded to that. Did they hang back because the charge was led by an organization with which they sharply disagreed? Did they warn the Jews against unsavory bedfellows? And then this defense of the Jews was seized by the Germans as a pretext for vicious crackdowns that shed some of the first blood of the occupation. Was there a wave of recrimination? If we just stayed quiet, those people would still be alive. There are hints in the Dutch Resistance Museum's displays that some at the time were uneasy with the Communist Jewish Alliance and that the protests gave the regime the excuse it was waiting for. We've heard those arguments most recently and closer to home. Is abolish ICE a grand idea, a way to galvanize the left, a way to keep the center, or is it playing into the hands of the immigrant bashers? The right, too, experiences the tension between its, its wing and its more, more centrist voices. Is the callousness and cruelty toward families on the border hurting the conservative cause of responding strictly to illegal immigration? The museum showed this kind of internal tension playing out even in the crisis of invasion and occupation. Also familiar was the way that some people were treated as heroes while their partners in resistance were virtually ignored. For example, Garrett van der Veen, one of the conspirators in the registry office bombing, has numerous streets named after him across the country, while another, who was gay, gets little recognition. See, I've already forgotten his name. Well, van der Veen sticks because it's a major street and a tram stop. We enact unfairness like this constantly, giving white woman credit for me too without acknowledging the black woman who initiated it or allowing our prejudices to influence which resistors of Trumpism get more attention and praise. Then these injustices prevent our unifying to fight our common enemy, sexual harassment, or the administration's policies. And although we seek heroes, few people are purely virtuous. Even resistors were tainted by prejudice and entitlement. When Jews who survived the camps returned to Holland, having suffered unimaginable violence and loss, Many of their neighbors downplayed the Jews' suffering, didn't want to hear about it, or drew facile false equivalents. A young girl who survived Bergen-Belsen heard from her neighbors all about the rationing of food and confiscation of bicycles that they endured, but they didn't want to hear about the camp. Do that failure to hear others' experience and the defensiveness about others' greater suffering 
Sound familiar? The Dutch were inheritors and upholders of a global empire from South America to Southeast Asia. As they fought for their own liberation, but held on tightly to their colonial properties, they were slow to acknowledge their hypocrisy. Likewise, the people they colonized made deals that also sit uneasily on the conscience. Many Indonesians took up arms against Dutch and Dutch East Indian residents of Indonesia, some of whom had lived there for generations. The Indonesians wanted to be a free republic and saw the Japanese fight against the Dutch as an opportunity to free themselves from colonial rule. So despite Japan's own imperialism and the repressiveness of the Japanese army, they joined forces with Japan to drive out the Dutch. Many Dutch East Indians and Dutch were bitter about this and didn't understand for years, if ever, that the struggle for Indonesian independence was much like their own struggle against German occupation. Resistance to oppression created painful parallels and uncomfortable coalitions, then as now. <clears throat> and there was the passionate support of the Dutch royal family, which had fled to England, which might seem an odd rallying cry for a pro-democratic movement, but also inspired and unified the people and the almost comically bourgeois forms of resistance, such as the woman who, when compelled by the Nazi officers to darn their socks, claimed ignorance and sewed them shut. Gasp. But laughably minor though it seems, it got her into trouble. Over and over, the experience of the Dutch Resistance Museum was one of deja vu. It seems as if we have been here before. So here's the thing to remember then. The Dutch resistors were victorious. They needed the allies to liberate the country ultimately, but they hung in there through starvation and repression and outright murder until they won and the Nazis lost. Their resistance movement was filled with infighting and compromise and sniping. They were hypocritical and lacking in unity, and yet they prevailed. Maybe all movements are like that. It's in the very nature of moral dilemmas that they are complex. One person's savvy compromise is another person's collaboration. One person's insistence on one battle at a time is another person's hypocrisy. Morality itself is messy. So how can resistance to evil be otherwise? I realized how much worry I spend on my disagreements with those who are working toward the same goals. And judging from conversations I observe, it's not just me. If we don't all pull together, we'll lose, we say. We can't afford infighting. And so we try to pick just the right tactic and to convince everyone that it's the best, the only one. 
And so the infighting continues and we sink into despair. But I think if we could all visit the Dutch Resistance Museum, those of us determined to make a better world would emerge with a sense of companionship and hope. Maybe this tangle of disagreement and uncertainty is just what successful resistance looks like. Maybe even when your efforts are messy and you've got a hundred things wrong, it can be enough. Maybe we'll never have complete unity, but we don't need it. Maybe we should stop worrying about being such a flawed, frustrating resistance movement and just keep on keeping on. They also serve who only sabotage the officer's socks. And if enough serve in enough ways, we will win. <laughs>